think I should be swearing when I do these. I mean, I am a teacher. Okay, so the Supreme Court decisions are rolling out. I'm looking forward to the Trump taxes decision, which I don't really know why, because it's possible we're not going to see them. They're just going to say that some investigators are allowed to look at his taxes, but those investigators aren't necessarily going to make those taxes public. I think it'd probably be illegal to do so. But the other piece to that is, who cares? He isn't as rich as he says. He was in a lot of debt. He owes money to Russians. We already know all that. And truthfully, who cares? You know, like, if you liked him, you wouldn't care. Seal of Law. That was a case that flew under the radar. I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. I haven't heard anyone report on it. I only know about it because I went to the Supreme Court website. They have a really good website now. SELA Law LLC versus CFPB. That's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Elizabeth Warren came up with that. This is her idea from, like, before she was in politics. (laughs) The Obama administration took it up and ended up being created... My recollection is they were going to put Elizabeth Warren in charge of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the Republicans were like, absolutely not. (laughs) The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, part of the law that created that, said that the president is not allowed to fire the head of the CFPB for any reason other than inefficiency, neglect, or malfeasance. The court just ruled that that was unconstitutional. Not the entire CFPB, but the prohibition on the president firing the head of the CFPB for any reason other than neglect. What is it? Oh, inefficiency. Inefficiency? Hmm. Inefficiency, neglect, or malfeasance. The prohibition on firing the head for any reasons other than those. The court ruled that that's unconstitutional. It violated separation of powers. That's interesting. I don't really have an opinion on that. Um, I also don't have the breakdown about the judges, but... That case just flew under the radar. I don't know why. That's That's an important case. I continue to notice that reporting on Supreme Court cases does not give you the name of the case. I find that very irritating. Okay, we got two cases that are basically about immigration. I think people know there was the DACA decision, but there was another one. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, where's my card? How can I do this without my card? The third... Jesus... Thuraisigium, the Thuraisigium decision. So this person, they applied for refugee status, their application was denied, and then they filed a writ of habeas corpus in order to sort of get their day in court to challenge that rejection of their application for refugee status. Well, that went to the Supreme Court and 7-2... to two, Mr. or Mrs. Thuraisigium 
was ruled against. And uh, Samuel Alito wrote that decision. So, uh, sorry, Mr. Thurut. Mr. T. The DACA decision was the name of... So that Mr. T's decision was um, Department of Homeland Security... <laughs> I, I complain that the reporting doesn't say the names, but I don't... I haven't been saying the names. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. With CELA Law LLC versus the CFPB. I think I did say that one. It's S-E-I-L-A. That's the CELA Law part. Mr. T, I'm not going to spell it for you. Um, Department of Homeland Security versus Thurisigium. Hey, that might have been it. The DACA decision was called... Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of California University. So this is one of the decisions where Roberts was on the kind of the wrong side from the conservative perspective. Roberts was appointed by George W. So there was an expectation that we have a conservative judge here who's going to rule in a conservative fashion. So he keeps disappointing. It's, it's entertaining. The DACA decision, this was a 5-4 decision. As I said, Roberts was in the majority. They ruled that the Trump administration's rescission of DACA was capricious and arbitrary. Yeah, this is a tough one because they weren't saying that the Trump administration can't get rid of DACA. That would be a really weird ruling, actually. But they were saying that they have to kind of wind it down in an orderly fashion. Dot the I's, cross the T's kind of thing. They have to give some official reason as to why they're getting rid of it. Which is weird because they argued that it was illegal. Now, I'm skeptical of that position. I think that the president, whoever it is, is given a lot of leeway as to how to prioritize immigration cases. And that's because there's so many of them, you're not going to address all of them. You're not going to send everybody out of the country. Even the Trump administration hasn't tried that. And so what the Obama administration did, I think it was 2012, deferred action for childhood arrivals. They said if you were brought here as a child and you haven't committed any other crime. Is that a crime when you're a child? Should I say other crime, or should I say haven't committed a crime? I, I don't know. The point is, for these childhood arrivals, they said you are a low priority for deportation. And they formalized it. And they made it an official policy. And it, it made it easier for these people to conduct their lives. Now, the Trump administration was arguing that all of that was illegal. It seems like the court should have ruled on that. So that decision basically just kicks the can down the road, um, though it probably kicks it down the road far enough that there'll be another president before the can is looked at again. Jury nullification. Where are we going with this? I get jury nullification. I got Collar v. Kansas. That's an interesting case. June Medical Services. 
I have the Cadaver Synod. I have Insanity, please. Where do we go next? Collar v. Kansas. I think I heard about this one on the New York Times podcast, I think. K-A-H-L-E-R. Collar killed his wife, his daughters, and I think probably his wife's mother. He pleaded insanity. Well, he wanted to plead insanity. I don't know if he actually did, because I don't think that he could. I think that's actually the basis of his lawsuit. So he brings his case to the Supreme Court, and he's saying, I'm insane. (laughs) And Kansas is not allowing me to plead insanity. Kansas is one of, I think, only four states that does not allow the insanity plea. Let's break that card out, too. Montana, Idaho, Utah, and apparently Kansas don't allow the insanity plea. A couple things about the insanity plea. There's two rules, basically. Half of the states use something called the monoton rule. It's not McNaughton, it's monoton. M apostrophe N-A-U-G-H-T-E-N, the monoton rule. What's weird about this is the monoton rule comes from an 1843 case in Britain. And we basically inherited the legal system of England, but this was 1843. So how that rule ended up over here sounds kind of like an interesting story. We must have consciously decided, or some states consciously decided to say, England just did something that we ought to emulate. Anyway, half of the states use that monoton rule. The other half use something called the American Law Institute's model standard. They have a rule based on the American Law Institute's model standard. That was created in 1962. I'm guessing that some of the states that have that rule probably had previously had the monoton rule. At any rate, virtually no one pleads insanity. Less than 1% of cases involve an insanity plea. 75% of insanity pleas are unsuccessful. (laughs) In the cases in which the insanity plea is successful, it's in the context of a plea deal. So sometimes prosecutors will apparently permit you to plea insanity as part of a larger deal. Do you have a constitutional right to the insanity plea? Are you guaranteed the opportunity to plead insanity? No. This was a 6-3 decision. Elena Kagan, I called her Elizabeth the other day. Elena Kagan wrote the decision. Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Breyer all dissented. This was basically a conservative-liberal split with a little bit of liberal defection to the majority. Hmm. So the argument would have been that the Eighth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment, that those two amendments would have been the source of this right to the insanity plea. That's kind of interesting. Seems like it ought to have been found in, like, the Sixth Amendment. Hmm. 
Okay, we did our insanity please. We addressed caller. I'm going to save jury nullification. Juries have the power to find someone innocent even if they've been persuaded that they're guilty. Did you know that? The Peter Zengler case. There's other cases of it too, but I'll talk about it a different time. Let's see if I can address abortion. So Roe v. Wade, 1973, right? This is the case where the Supreme Court basically said you can abort a pregnancy up to X weeks in. I remember if I, I can put myself back in time, it used to make sense to me that you can't say that someone has a right to something that is not in the Constitution. Nowhere in the amendments does it say you have a right to an abortion. So I, I used to be sympathetic with that argument, and I'm talking about way back in time here. And then you read the amendments, it is very explicitly clear in Amendments 9 and 10 that it is not the case that if a right is not explicitly stated in the Constitution that the people do not have that right. That's simply wrong. That's the wrong way to think about it. The Ninth and Tenth Amendments say that. They say it a little more eloquently than I can here and now in the Honda Fit studio. But that's what they say. So this idea of a right to privacy that's floating in the penumbra, or however they put it, that makes a lot of sense to me. When does life begin? You know what's funny? Steven Pinker, Sam Harris, you discover them and they say things that you've kind of thought, and they say it so much better than you ever thought it, and you think, thank God. It's so refreshing to hear someone articulate that thought. The problem, though, is that now when you go and you express the same ideas, it just sounds like you're parroting what they said, even though I thought this before. It's just that Sam Harris did kind of take the words out of my mouth. I think he said this. I could I could be wrong, but I remember thinking like, wow, he just said everything I thought about abortion. Not everything. There was there was one or two things he said that I, I don't agree with. But the idea that personhood begins at the moment of conception. I don't know that we have to pick the story up with a brain, but we probably have to be a little bit closer to the appearance of a brain. I don't think a heart is disturbing as it is to think of stopping a human heart from beating. I don't think a heartbeat constitutes a person. But it's also obviously not the case that there's something magical about leaving that other person's body. At some point prior to that, this developing person is a person. And it seems like that's what the court said, and that seems right to me. I kind of feel like they kind of got it right. Tough question. They kind of balanced the issues, settled on something. This June Medical Services case, this is actually 
a really big deal. And it is not unreasonable to suspect that June Medical Services is the case that established that Roe versus Wade is going to remain good law as long as Roberts is on the court. In 2016, the court ruled against a Texas law. Whole Woman's Health, I think this was called, versus Hellerstadt, something like that. 2016 case. It required abortion providers to have, what is this called again? You know, like an agreement with a hospital admitting privileges. It's obviously a pretext for restricting abortion. That was a 5-3 decision. This was after Scalia died, I think is what happened. I think Kennedy was with the majority, and I think Scalia was dead. And Breyer wrote the decision, and it had something to do with you can't place an undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion. This Louisiana law was the same law, basically. Why did they bring a case now with the same law? Well, two of the justices have been replaced. Scalia had died, and now he's been replaced. Kennedy left, and now they have another conservative If Roberts had voted the same way he did just four years ago, this Louisiana law would have stayed in place. The composition of the court has changed. And lots of people were expecting that he was going to vote that way. (laughs) And he voted. He voted with the majority. I mean, it, it was only a majority because he was on the majority. It was four liberals for conservatives and he was the tie vote and he sided with the liberals to protect abortion rights why'd he do this do you remember i was talking about this in an earlier episode i kind of predicted this story decisis i said five four he said i'm not going to overthrow a precedent that we just established which is a little weird because Would you be okay with overthrowing a long-established precedent? He basically said we should stick to precedent unless we have a good reason not to. That's June Medical Center. That was a huge case. The Cadaver Synod. We have reached the terminus. Pope Formosus. This is a crazy story. He's a bishop outside of Rome. A bishop is in charge of a group of churches. He's kind of a rising star within the church. But he pisses some people off and he gets excommunicated. And I think the way that he pissed them off was just that these other people knew like he was a rising star and might be a political rival. Now the Pope is dropping dead like annually in this time period. You have a new pope left and right. So popes come and go. And did I call him Pope Formosus already? I shouldn't have. Obviously, he wasn't called Pope Formosus prior to becoming pope. Formosus. He was brought back into the church eventually. 
And he continues to find success, and he becomes the Pope. So the first thing that's really interesting about him is he is the first person who was once excommunicated to become Pope. He was totally kicked out of the church. Now he's the Pope. That's kind of nuts. Pope Formosus, he does something I guess he shouldn't have done. I think this dates back to Charlemagne. So Charlemagne, I believe it's the year 800. It's like Christmas Eve. Maybe it's Christmas Day, the year 800. Rome is a thing of the past. There hasn't been an emperor since Romulus Augustus in like, you know, 476 or something. Charlemagne is crowned emperor in the year 800. He's crowned by the Pope. In a way, this is all Charlemagne's fault. <laughs> Because Formosus crowns the wrong guy emperor. Arnulf or something? The point is he pisses some people off. He picks the wrong guy. He pisses off these other people. Formosus dies anyway. So it doesn't sound like he pays any price during his lifetime for this. But obviously somebody else becomes pope after Formosus. They drop dead. And then there's another pope. This is Pope Stephen VI. Stephen VI, for whatever reason, I don't know if he had a personal grievance with Formosus or if Pope Stephen VI is just trying to cultivate favor and support from powerful people who had been pissed off by Formosus. But Pope Stephen VI digs Formosus up and puts him on trial. The Cadaver Synod. I don't understand why he had to be there. Haven't people been tried in absentia before? Isn't that a thing? To be tried in absentia? Why did they need to dig him up? So they dig him up. They hire some kid to be his lawyer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there you have the Pope screaming at this dead guy. They find Formosus guilty of perjury of something else. It was like transmigrating seas. They find him guilty. They cut off his fingers. They throw him in the Tiber River. His supporters drag him out of the river when no one's looking. The church finds out and throws him back in the river. His supporters drag him back out of the river. <laughs> it goes on like this. The dead Pope trial. They dug the dude up. They put him on trial. And I think his bones are... Are they on display? I think the papacy has some really interesting, like, catacombs. Well, that's what I got for you tonight, slash today, slash whenever you're listening to this.